Um, we, we've had a lot of wartime type analogies. This isn't a war. Um, the productive infrastructure of the country or of economies is not being destroyed. Um, it is still there. Uh, the shock uh, to supply is temporary and it will bounce back. Um, but as I've already said um, uh, in this uh, uh, session, I think there will be some structural damage uh, to our economies. Um, we can't expect it to bounce back 100%. And most importantly, it'll change shape. Well, hello, and a very warm welcome to this, the fourth live webcast from Investec Wealth and Investment. We are growing. Uh, last week, our web chat had people dialing in from 38 countries, which is fantastic news. So if you are new to this, welcome to our series on markets and investing in times of COVID-19. I'm Christian Fraser, your host from the BBC. Philip Hammond, of course, a major player in the Theresa May government. The lockdown that we're experiencing all across the world is to varying degrees now standard policy. And we're starting to get daily figures on um, how the virus is spreading, which means we can assess the effectiveness of lockdown as a tool. Uh, we wait to see in the longer term, of course, what impact it has on the economic and political landscape. But fair to say it is probably going to be considerable. And that really is what we want to discuss with Philip today, the world that awaits us after the pandemic. We're also joined today, I'm pleased to say, by Victoria Clark, who is not just one of Investec's top economists, but in a previous life was also a senior economic advisor to Gordon Brown's cabinet. She was on the National Economic Council. So we are very well covered today with political expertise. And also here, no less important, John Haynes, head of research at Investec Wealth and Investment UK. And he is the chair of the Investec Global Investment Strategy Group, who've had another meeting this week. So perhaps we'll talk to him about that. And John, as usual, will be giving us, as he does each week, the overview of recent market developments and their impact. Right, to business. Uh, the reason Investec does this each week is because it's important, more important than ever at the moment in such out of the ordinary times to have this continuing dialogue with you, the client. And we do that by bringing together not only the expertise that there is within Investec, but also the external experts in their respective fields. And that's why we have Philip Hammond with us today. So, John, before we turn to Philip, uh, let me just ask you for a quick overview of the facts as they are today and whether things have changed, whether the view on your committee has changed on the outlook for global growth. I think um, uh, our, our committee's job at the moment is, is to essentially establish what a sensible path is um, uh, to expect for global growth going forward and to have a consensus view and then to decide whether or not um, the, the markets, if you like, are, are over-discounting bad news or under-discounting bad news. So part of that is, is a view on the virus itself. Um, is it developing in any way that's different from, from how we previously thought? Uh, and the second part of it is, is to decide that given those facts, what the shape of, of the economic curve is likely to be. Are we going to have a V-shape? Is it going to be a, a long tail of, of, of bad news? Or are we going to have a recovery in the relatively uh, foreseeable future? The key starting point clearly is to believe that this is a temporary factor. It's traumatic, but it is temporary. Uh, and, and our view is, is very much that, that, that we are still very confident that, that the, the uh, shape of the curve, if you like, will see a recovery, material recovery, uh, this year. Uh, we are adopting demand restriction policies as a price 
for controlling this this virulent virus and that that is a, a choice that we're making which is an excellent one for humanity it's tough uh, economically um but we think uh, our the, our view of the curve is that we will start to see um a withdrawal of some of these restrictive measures sometime in in the middle of the year within the next month six weeks uh, and then slowly you'll start to see demand returning uh, and then you'll see a rapid move upwards in in global growth to something close to let's say 95 98% or, or or so of the previous level before we went in and then you'll start to to, to see a slower curve now precisely how much we recover depends uh, upon the effectiveness both of of policies to ensure that the plumbing the the, the fiscal plumbing or the the financial plumbing is secure and also policies to to inject demand into the world economy in the place of the demand that you've suppressed. So it's a bit like a, a bit like an engine. Um, uh, we we are voluntarily shutting down our, our economic machine, uh, and and like any engine, when you shut it down, you you've got to prepare for it to start up again, and you've got to both have have oil in in the system so it starts up smoothly, and you've got to have petrol in the engine so that when it starts up, it can actually fire up decently. And one set of policies, the oil, if you like, is the monetary policies, the central banks making sure uh, there is liquidity in the system so it, it can, things can function when they're asked to function again. The, the petrol is the fiscal stimulus. You're, you're, you're keeping people employed even though perhaps they're not needed yet. But, but when, you, when you ask them to function again, they not only are able to produce and satisfy demand, but they themselves will be part of the demand equation. So we think that the policies in place are effective and, and will actually keep the economic fabric of, of our world largely in place so that when the demand restriction policies are, are withdrawn, we will recover to a level of, of growth that, that will convince people that the economic fabric longer term hasn't been damaged uh, and, and will quickly regain confidence in, in their futures. Okay, so not bullish, but quietly optimistic then. Yes, hopeful, I think, is right. Um, we don't think people will share our views entirely until they can see material progress on, on the viral trajectory. Um, but we don't think that's too far away. OK, let's put some of that then uh, to Philip, who is with us. Let's talk, first of all, Philip, about leadership, if we could. Are you happy, generally speaking, with the way governments have responded? Has there been enough support and the right kind of support? Well, I think it's not a question of whether I'm happy. It's a question of whether voters around the world are happy. And polling suggests that they are. Um, governments in office are enjoying generally uh, strong uh, polling, showing strong approval ratings. Uh, I think this is a very tough time for politicians in office. Obviously, the world's focus is on the health emergency. And the narrative is largely about combating the virus, preventing uh, deaths, uh, trying to get on top of the disease. Um, and it's quite difficult for politicians to talk about the economic effects without sounding callous and uh, as though they're more focused on the economy than the health issues. But um, as, as John has been describing, um, as we move through the curve of the virus, uh, increasingly we need governments to be thinking about how to manage the recovery, how to put in place all the necessary uh, moving parts to make sure that the economy, which we've voluntarily shut down here, um, can be started up again um, in good order. And I, I largely agree with John's analysis. 
the, the only area where I'd slightly disagree is I think we will be very lucky to get through this without any structural damage uh, to the economy. I, I think uh, sectors of the economy which were already fragile, um, I'm thinking about retailing in the UK, for example, um, I think will suffer some structural damage. I do not believe that all the retailers that have shut down for the crisis will reopen after it. I think the decline of uh, the high street will be accelerated, for example. So we are going to have to deal with some structural change um, uh, as a, consequences of this, a consequence of this crisis. But yes, it's primarily a supply shock. And as the supply side of the economy kicks back into life, um, provided governments have done what they are doing now, maintaining um, households' ability to deliver effective demand. Um, yes, I, I would agree with John that um, we would expect the economy to start recovering quite sharply um, later on in the year. I'm going to come back to recovery. I'm just going to park that for a second because I, I want to talk about the immediate action that's being taken. Obviously, governments are watching each other. Do you think there are some clear lessons emerging for governments as to what is best policy? Well, I think the first thing um, is if you're going to do something, do it. Um, without naming names, we've seen one or two governments that have appeared to prevaricate and um, toy with the idea of taking a different route from what seems to be the global mainstream. Uh, and then they've dropped into line later on and followed the global mainstream. I think the lesson um, probably is, is if you're going to do it, get on with it. Um, uh, make sure that you put the measures in place that will um, ho hopefully help to deliver confidence to the economy um, and um, maintaining uh, incomes to allow demand to bounce back when supply is able to satisfy it is going to be the crucial issue here. Governments have got quite a lot of tools to manage um, demand um, in the recovery. What governments do not have uh, so much direct control over is uh, supply in the recovery. They can they can they can halt supply, and in many cases have done so. Um, but in the recovery, governments' ability to micromanage the supply side of the economy is far less than its ability to manage the demand side of the economy. Okay, that's a good place to bring in Victoria. Um, Victoria, the British government, like many others, is pledging to do whatever it takes. But what are the implications of that long term for government finances? That's absolutely right. It's whatever it takes, not just for the British government, but I mean, right around the world. So, I mean, certainly, you know, if we're looking at this from a global um, investment perspective, I mean, key to this, to a lot of this is what's happening in those biggest economies. So, perhaps briefly just looking at the US, the scale of what we're seeing in the US and, and other economies, but particularly in the US, um, now that they finally got there through um, through the President Trump cares bill is really quite phenomenal. So what we've got is a $2 trillion stimulus package signed through there. Um, that's about 10% of US GDP, and they're already talking about more. So, you know, this is a live process. We don't know exactly yet what the 
um, precise fiscal costs are going to be because that's going to depend on the evolution of the virus, the economic consequences, which will have implications for how much um, revenues government lose, how much more it has to push out through various spending and obviously what other um, tailored um, specific stimulus policies get pushed out. But that is really quite significant. In, you know, just to put it in context, that 10 percent of US GDP that we're talking about um, is 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 much bigger than the nearly 5 percent that, that the Americans put through through the crisis years 08, 09, 10. So it really is quite staggering. And that coming on top of a, uh, an already more worrying baseline from a fiscal perspective. So, you know, depending on which set of numbers you look at, the Congressional Budget Office is talking about um, US debt to GDP of about 80 percent at the starting point and that growing to um, almost 100 percent by the end of, of the decade, by 2030. So now you throw this sort of fiscal spending on top of that and you, re you know, you really are looking at some quite um, mind boggling fiscal numbers. And obviously at the end of all that, that there's going to need to be some pretty tough questions asked about what needs to happen with borrowing um, and, you know, what the US administration is going to do to get that debt trajectory, debt to GDP on a, you know, on a more comfortable or a more palatable um, profile. Similar in the UK, the, the the UK is still an evolution as well. We you know we don't know uh, what the final fiscal package is going to look like. We know it's pretty big so far. I think the Institute for Fiscal Studies here is talking about um, about 177 billion, which um, they're saying is going to be about eight percent um, of of US uh, sorry UK GDP um, in deficit terms. So again, pretty significant there. Although I think at the peak in 0809 we were looking at a deficit of about 10 percent, a little above 10 percent. So um, it's slightly less than that. But these are pretty huge numbers um, and. Again, as I say, it's an evolving picture, more stimulus being added as we get to grips with where the pressure points are, um, you know, where more spending is needed. And obviously, as we continue forward. So at the moment, the focus is very much on trying to um, plug some of the holes. And then as we move past this phase and we start to be able to unlock some of society and get people back to work, it's going to be more about trying to deliver the demand response. So there may need to be more um, of a fiscal boost there. There. But as I say, um, you know, it's not just the States, it's not just the UK, you know, across economies globally, we, you know, we really are looking at some quite eye watering fiscal numbers. And at the end of all of that, some serious questions to be asked about what um, should or will be done to bring those debt trajectories back into um, something which most um, governments would feel more comfortable with over, you know, a, a medium to long term perspective. So, Philip, just talking to that point that we've had from Victoria there, our experience in the UK over the last 10 years has been getting the debt down. And there has been this austerity fatigue in the UK. Are we are we saying that we're going back to that, back to where we were in 2010-11? Well, first of all, let me say the, the, the purpose of the focus on debt reduction over the last decade in the UK has been precisely to get us in a state where we are fit to deal with a crisis like this. It was never austerity for its own sake. It was austerity in order to make us leaner and fitter, fixing the roof while the sun was shining in order that we would have some reserves of firepower if we needed to deal with a recession. Um, we couldn't have known at the time that it was going to be a, a global event like this. It could have just been a, a, an, an ordinary uh, domestic economy recession. 
Um, but we're in better shape to do that because of the measures that were taken. Now, as Victoria's just set out, um, the extraordinary uh, package of stimulus, which, by the way, I support, um, is going to need to be paid for, in a sense. We're going to have to allocate um, how that pain of lost output is um, um, shared, how we deal uh, with the consequences. And I suspect we're going to see some increased uh, taxation, um, some reining back of the very ambitious uh, programme that the government has set out of additional public spending. Some of that will, I think, now not be possible on the scale that the government has um, uh, envisaged. Um, there will also, of course, be significantly higher borrowing, I suspect, for some time into the future. And then there's the question of inflation. Um, uh, some of the actions that are being uh, taken right now, all other things being equal, and of course all other things aren't equal, but all other things being equal um, would uh, tend to have the effect of uh, delivering an inflationary um, stimulus. Um, but we may also find that policymakers, political leaders, reach for inflation as a policy tool to manage down uh, debt-to-GDP ratios uh, over coming years and decades. I know it's difficult to look beyond the short term because we're right in the teeth of the crisis at the moment, but, but how do you expect the world to change, not just from a financial perspective, but geopolitically? How, how will it affect the way we look at the world years from now? Well, I think, um, uh, I mean, we will go back to what I think was happening before this crisis. The world was polarising um, into two power blocks, two economic blocks, one led by the US and one led by China. And if you're European, that's quite an uncomfortable position to be in because Europe increasingly feels like a very large economy with absolutely no uh, strategic power squeezed between these two massive economic and strategic power blocks. So it's a very um, uncomfortable prognosis for um, uh, the Europeans, but, uh, but I'm sure that uh, dynamic will reassert itself. Um, I think uh, what we will see is some questioning of the patterns of global trade that we've got used to. Um, the very efficient uh, lean global supply chains, um, which have worked very well when they're working very well, um, will, uh, I think, come into um, sharp focus because they've proven to be very non-resilient. And I think across the globe, people will be looking from a national security perspective at the way trade supply chains work uh, and will be asking whether we need to mandate the building in for national security purposes of greater resilience. I can't imagine, for example, that in the UK, um, the public isn't going to want to see some greater domestic capability to produce vital medical supplies and equipment in case there's um, a further crisis of this nature. We already do this um, in the military sphere where we routinely accept that we will pay a price in terms of economic efficiency for having a domestic 
uh, military production capability. But we know we need, for example, to be able to produce um, submarines uh, in the UK for strategic reasons. Uh, and we therefore produce them very expensively when we could buy them much cheaper from the Americans. But we choose to have a domestic production capability. And I would expect um, public opinion to want to see that approach applied to other strategic areas of the economy, including healthcare. It's a really important point that, isn't it, Victoria? Um, there are huge advantages, of course, we know, to globalization. But when borders are pulled down nationally, uh, as they have to be to control the virus, uh, and as Philip says, there are um, uh, strategic industries that, uh, that suffer as a result, then people are going to ask obvious questions about globalization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, big questions being asked about whether things may have moved too far, whether there's more resilience that needs to be built in. And of course, that, you know, key focus over over recent years and decades has been, you know, trying to bring down costs, trying to maximise competitiveness. Then obviously that will be looked at, I, you know, I think pretty broadly after all of this by, you know, governments the world over. Um, you know, one interesting question one inc interesting angle from all of this um that's, that someone asked me in the last couple of days is whether this likely changes the dynamic in in trade talks globally but perhaps also on brexit you know will it make um the eu and the uk more or less inclined to go for you know a freer more more, more integrated trading arrangement to try and make sure that 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 drives the upturn that comes at the end of all of this or perhaps you know given that that there's more um, resilience, more um, security in having, you know, more of a domestic process. Does that reinforce the dynamic of, of onshoring? So, you know, that's obviously um, a, a difficult question to answer at this because as Philip and, and others have said, um, you know, we could be facing quite a different economic landscape, um, you know, in terms of globalization, but also in terms of perhaps the structural mix of the economy, um, you know, the retail sector in particular, um, but there will be firms that, I mean, clearly there will be firms that won't be caught in the safety net or the safety net won't be enough um, to keep them operating um, for as long or in the way that they have before. So I think, you know, at the end of all of this, um, you know, the economy will bounce back and, you know, we can mend the, the public finances in the way and how we choose to do so. But we will be faced with um, some differences in, in the structure of the UK economy. They may be small, they may be big. Uh, I want to put this point to Philip in a second, but in terms of um, the post-crisis solutions, it's very easy to intervene. It's less easy to unpick that intervention. Who decides when it happens? When is the time right? What happens if some countries go before others? What sort of tensions is that going to put into the global system? So, I mean, I so I think from a global perspective, in terms of sort of trade repercussions, that it's you know, it's likely that we we have a have a rethink globally about whether we need a slightly more coordinated approach. So, I mean, one of the key things that struck struck me over the last few weeks is actually how slow international authorities were to come together in the way that they were in the aftermath of 2008 and 2009. So, um, you know, finally, um, you know, in the last week or so, we had this kind of whatever it takes statement from those international authorities. And, um, you know, it was that plus the sort of late to the party announcement of various fiscal measures that seemed to finally 
um, kick um, risk sentiment a little bit more into life. And I would hope that, um, you know, in the aftermath of this, um, there is perhaps more appetite um, for, you know, for global coordination. Um, we'll see whether the presidential election this year brings a change of leadership there. That might be significant as well. Um, but there's a number of factors. And I think, you know, if people are hurt hard in the downturn and the recovery isn't as quick and as sharp as people expect, then that will change the psychology. And perhaps that might drive um, some of those global coordination um, forces um, you know, back together, which which would certainly, from my perspective, be a clear positive. Philip, let me put that point to you. Unwinding the stimulus that we've had, who says when that happens? How quick can it happen? Well, I think there are two um, points here around unwinding, and, and Victoria is absolutely right. It's much easier for governments to get involved, intervene, than it is to unwind that intervention. Um, firstly, um, some of the things that are being done by governments around the world uh, and that need to be done just a few weeks ago uh, would have been described as unfair trade practices and would have invited uh, potential trade retaliation in what has been a, um, a, 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 an increasingly prickly trade environment in the world. So there does need to be coordination at the level of the, the G20, the OECD, to ensure that there is some uh, coordinated understanding of what is legitimate and for how long, and that on the down curve, we don't find people playing games around uh, unfair competitive trade advantage, trying to keep uh, intervention measures in place to unfairly advantage uh, the, the um, businesses and industries of one country uh, over another. So that's gonna be a really important uh, question for the, um, uh, for, the, for the global organizations. How can we coordinate that? And in a crisis, it's relatively easy to get people to play, um, to play along. Once the crisis is over and we're on the, we're on the uh, recovery slope, um, the temptations to game the system will, um, I'm afraid, uh, come back very quickly. I think the well, second that, point is sorry, if I could just, yeah. the, the, the second yeah. point is that, that within domestic economies, some of the interventions that are made will be quite difficult um, to undo quickly. Let me give an example. It seems likely um, that governments will have to intervene to support uh, the airline industry across the world. Um, and yet the uh, airline industry is at the forefront of another very controversial debate around climate change and global warming. If we end up in a world where our governments control our airlines, um, those who uh, would seek a more radical solution to addressing climate change will want governments to use that control um, in a very political way. And governments extracting themselves from control of the air airline industry, for example, may prove to be quite uh, difficult and controversial politically. And just extending that point, it's maybe off our beaten track, but in terms of climate change, which is important to global economy, the global economy going forward, does this set back the climate debate? Does it show, uh, given that we've had to take many of the measures that we might have to take to tackle climate change, that we're not prepared to do it? Well, I think it, uh, I think it does have a potentially significant impact on the way the climate debate 
um, plays out. Because as you say, many people will take from this experience um, a, a pretty negative view of some of the changes um, that some campaigners are advocating uh, in the name of tackling climate change. Um, so I think there perhaps will be a recalibration, not of whether we need to do this, but of how we need uh, to address the climate change challenge. Um, it puts it, it puts some of the measures that we've been talking about in the abstract um, into a very um, stark contrast um, as we face this particular crisis. I want to bring John back in um, because John, you understand China very well. I think you even speak a bit of Mandarin. Um, so you're well equipped to comment on what we've been discussing with regards to the trading war that we've had between the United States and China. Where do you think that goes post-crisis? Yeah, thank you, Christian. Um, I'd like to draw on a point that, that I think uh, 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 Mr. Hammond made earlier on, which, which was uh, essentially the, 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 uh, the trends that we saw in place before this, this is, as we've been confronted with this challenge, are just going to be accelerated. That's what I see this process doing. There are a number of things that were happening already that are being massively accelerated by 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 these challenges that we face. One of us is, you know, suddenly we all know we can work online, um, uh, and and that whole retail reorganisation is is going to happen overnight. So absolutely, Philip's comment to my earlier point that that we're not going to recover all the fabric that we that has been unpicked by by this particular uh, uh, shock is is absolutely right that, that, that it's substantially intact is the economic fabric not entirely intact is is, is where we will be but i think um uh, the, the 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 great geopolitical forces that that have been uh, essentially we, we we rode the the rise of china in a very positive way in in the post 2000 period um, and, and essentially, we, we had a, a, a economic and monetary environment, which, which, which essentially was Pax Americana plus Bretton Woods too. We, we, we essentially had a stable exchange rate mechanism with China that enabled it to bring itself out of, out of uh, poverty and make itself into a second world nation uh, and, and essentially establish an economy and an economic base, which is now the second largest uh, in, in, on the planet. And now it is and has been starting to try and exercise the, the rights that it perceives to, to have accrued as a result of, of, of achieving that status. Um, and and the, the idea that, that, that this crisis is going to do anything other than uh, convince them that they need to do that even more is, is, is I think, a pie in the sky. So we're going to see more of China. We have the same issues on our plate, just, just magnified um, uh, over the, as, as we did in the past few years. Now, Taking China on in, in an aggressive way is never going to work. Um, so, so trade war as an option for this, is, uh, for, for rebalancing the, the global power base is not going to work. How is China going to respond? Well, they're going to look for a respectful relationship with the United States and all their partners. And, and the first shots that were fired in, in attempting to reset that debate last year and the year before by, by the Trump administration, those echoes are going to come back and come back and come back. I think that for investors, uh, I, I just think, however, you, you, you've got to accept that as being a, a rising and falling heat in the in the in the two most important uh, in the most important economic interaction in, on 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 the in the uh, global economy at the moment. But you've got to make a decision. You've got to decide. It's not so much about America. You know, America is going to 
essentially behave in a certain way, reasonably predictably, you have to make a decision about whether you think China is going to behave in a reasonable, predictive, reasonably predictable way. Is it a force for stability or a force for instability? And you have to have an explicit view on that, because if you think China is going to be a force for instability in the economic equation, then, then we have some very unpleasant uh, um, periods ahead of us. Uh, for me, I read the Chinese as, as understanding their interests as being a force for stability. Their whole, their whole dynastic uh, um, justification, the justification of any dynasty is, is, is that they have the mandate of heaven. They provide stability for, for, for their people. So I think the Chinese agenda is, 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 is positive in terms of the development of the global economy. But if it isn't, if, if they get pushed too far by the, by the way that people decide to aggressively pursue a single interest slicing of the economic cake, then a little like Saudi Arabia and Russia have decided to do, to, to do a beggar my neighbor strategy in the oil markets, uh, there, there is no guarantee that China wouldn't do the same thing for, for trade markets in order to make a point. So, so you know, this is going to be a very interesting exit from from uh, from this particular incident it will reset and clarify people's agendas and i expect some quite hard uh, statements from both sides uh, uh, as as you as you move into the into the next two or three years if president trump gets another another uh, term of government uh, then then his 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 china 2 policy if you like china 1 was to get them to the table and, and to shout a little bit china 2 is, is, is to get even more progress out of it. And, and we will see whether that agenda is pursued in a way that is acceptable to the Chinese or not. If not, um, then, then I'm afraid we're gonna have some uncomfortable times again, uh, in, in, which is totally independent of the current crisis. And just very quickly, before I get to our viewers' questions, Philip, lest we forget, aside from that China issue, there is also, as John just said, the oil price issue as well, which was there before the crisis. Yes, can I just, um, on the China question, just very briefly, I think the key thing here is whether the um, Western powers led by the US are going to allow the international institutions that we have to evolve in a way that gives China uh, a reasonable bite of the cherry. Um, China's the world's second largest economy. Um, if we want China to be pro the um, uh, status quo, then we have to make the status quo work for China. If we insist on uh, keeping China out of what it sees as its rightful role, then it will start to set up rival institutions and become a force for instability. So I think I agree with John that China is instinctively uh, a force for stability, but we have to ensure that China can exercise that instinct for stability within the institutions we've created. And on the question uh, of oil, of course, there's a separate um, battle going on here, um, partly about um, the spat between Saudi Arabia and Russia, partly perhaps about the irritation by the traditional oil producers around the growing um, <clears throat> significance of US um, fracking as a force in the oil market, um, and a sense that a period of low-priced oil will kill off uh, that competitor for good. And actually some of what's happening at the moment suggests that might be the right um, analysis. But we're, we're in a very bad place in the oil market at the moment with um, storage capacity rapidly running out 
and everybody seemingly intent on keeping the taps turned up at full capacity. That's going to create some very serious problems um, for many economies uh, around the world. And it's, it's yet another strand of um, instability that we have to deal with. Okay, uh, we get an incredible number of questions that come in from people who watch us each week. And as ever, we're, we are allocating experts within Investec to get to all your questions. So you will get an answer. It might take us 24 hours to get to each and every one of them, but be patient with us because we will get you answers. But let, let me pick out two or three of, of those that we've had. And maybe I could start with you, Victoria. Um, here's one. With the indiscriminate sell-off in equities, driven largely by the dominance of quantitative investing, to what extent do you think this will shift institutional investors away from passive indexation towards more active approaches with greater emphasis on price discovery? Yeah, um, fine. Uh, the, 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 it probably is a, a better house with me. Um, I, I think there, there are, it's it structurally, uh, we have set up uh, a, an industry which finds it easier to use passive products and, and that momentum will be hard to unwind uh, very quickly. Um, but I do think uh, we will find that there are a, a large number of, of these, if you like, these strategies and, and institutions that, that are attempt, they are free riding effectively on, on the research capabilities of, of people who do, who do work the old fashioned way, who decide whether they want to buy Unilever or Coca-Cola based on the individual fundamentals of the companies, uh, they just buy an index and just say, well, somebody's doing the work, it'll be fine. Um, they'll find out there's a price to doing that. And the price to doing that is you don't just um, rise with the ship, you fall, you, you sink with the ship as well. And, and, and some of these companies that, that fundamental investors will be doing more work on will, will be doing better than the average and, and some of them substantially better than the average in, in a struggling time. So I think there will be people who have taken these strategies and particularly those who, as we always do, levered them at the wrong time, will find that, that there is an, an underlying fault to their strategies that they hadn't realized and, and some of the capacity pursuing those strategies will go away. I, I think longer term, um, that there is clearly a, a, a substantial pool of money that, that just wants low cost execution and exposure to the global economy. They, they will be around for some time. But I do think the tide of, of that being the default strategy uh, is, is probably going to be halted and, and potentially reversed. I hope reversed because, because I think actually it's a, it's a good thing to, to have, have a, an industry that, that does work the old fashioned way. I think I do think that, 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 that uh, institutions that have practiced things that way and proven to have successful uh, um, uh, research efforts that can differentiate good from bad. In, in these environments will attract funds and, and, and we will re-establish potentially uh, the, the uh, fund management industry, asset management industry, or at least reinvigorate the asset management industry that, 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 that is built on fundamental principles uh, uh, after this crisis. So yes, I, I, think, I think it will halt the momentum of growth rather than totally reverse it, but I think um, uh, it, it is a good thing going forward. Victoria, let me put one to you on liquidity. Um, despite the Fed introducing infinity QE, uh, the dollar gained some ground over a host of currencies this week. My question is, do you think the bailout as large as it is was enough or does Congress need to pump some more cash into the system or am I missing some elements in the balance sheet and am I far off to say my outlook on the greenback is bullish? 
Well, I'm almost certain, actually, that we'll see more from the US administration. Um, we may well see more from the Fed. I mean, as, as the question notes, the Fed has now launched open-ended QE, but it's keeping all of its policy tools and it's put in place pretty a robust and wide-ranging armory, actually, with a lot of um, additional repo operations in place. Um, it's um, it's got a, a, an extensive facility now there, but it, um, as the U.S. administration is, is looking at the pressure points day in day out. And um, open-ended QE um, will take a while to ramp up the balance sheet and therefore um, deal with some of those pressures. But in the meantime, as I say, they've got additional operations in place to help to ease some of those liquidity strains. But yeah, as I say, for, for the administration, I think that there will be more. We're still learning. We, you know, we're learning day by day what the evolution of the virus is and where um, individual households, businesses, um, etc., are facing their pressures. So there will be a need to be dynamic and to respond to that um, in that way. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, who's Speaker of the US House of Representatives, is already working on a new um, package, which I think she's planning to table after Easter. So there will undoubtedly be more. Now, in terms of the dollar, um, we're very much in the phase where, you know, you can't get enough dollars and the dollar is is is, is completely um, attractive from a safe haven perspective at this point in time. Now, you know, one could look at some of the US fiscal numbers and ask, over a long perspective, whether that persists, but I think certainly short term, um, because this virus is it doesn't look set to go away in a matter of weeks. Um, you know that uh, those forces, those safe haven forces, will remain very much there, very present. Um, and you know, typically when we're looking at interest rate differentials as being a key driver of currency moves, they're very much in the background at the moment. So certainly, you know, for us, you know, Investec looking at our currency forecast, it's very much about um, the dollar and that um, risk sentiment driving the attractiveness of that further over the next um, few months. But then perhaps as we get into next year, if, if the recovery comes as quickly as we expect, then we might start to see a bit more of those, um, you know, those interest rate differentials, the monetary policy considerations coming back to the fore. But it's, it's, I mean, it's all so uncertain because we're dealing with a, a complete unknown in terms of the medical path of the virus. And of course, how far down the economy goes near term and how quickly it then comes back up. Can I make okay. a on, on that? Yes, please, please do. I mean, Currency forecasts are, are the graveyard of, of, of reputations. Um, but what, what I would say is Victoria has, has said exactly right that, that, that essentially it's, it's a fear trade at the moment is, is, is driving the dollar up. If people use the dollar as a transactional currency of, of going from one asset class to another, so the demand for dollars goes up as you are reorienting portfolios. So, so we're seeing the dollar strength is an artifact of the stress in the system at the moment. Um, I, I think longer term, if you're thinking about currencies, you, you need to understand from our perspective that, that if we are putting a lot of uh, fiscal stimulus in the system, and everybody's doing it, um, and at the same time you're trying to hold interest rates down, and everybody will do that too, uh, that, that you can't also hold your currency stable. So, so what has been actually a relatively unvolatile currency regime between the superpowers, the dollar, euro, and and the yuan, um, uh, that can't hold. If 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 we go forward with this this mix of policies, the pressure is going to come out in in one of those three portions. You're either going to have less less um, deficit financing, 
or you're going to hold your interest rates down less, or your currencies are going to go up and down. And and I would have said that that, that the era of almost fixed exchange rates globally, yuan, euro, dollar, and and however much they've gone up and down, it has been minimal in comparison with with the experience in in the pre two thousand period. We're going to see a lot more currency volatility going forward. And just quickly, Philip, what does that mean for pressure on sterling that we've seen in recent weeks? Well, um, again, uh, I take my uh, the mantra of the Chancellor that one never comments on um, the currency, um, and I'll probably still stick to that. But I, I think I, I agree with everything that Victoria and John have said. Um, what's happening at the moment doesn't look terribly rational. Um, but but the world is in a defensive mode. Um, people are not um, acting in, in their investment behaviour to make money at this stage. They're acting to try to minimise their losses and build the best defensive position they can in what is still a very unknown environment. That's going to change. I, I would think very soon the bargain hunters um, will be out there quite quickly um, moving beyond the defensive stage, looking offensively at how they can um, benefit from uh, the opportunities that um, uh, you know a situation like this inevitably creates. But it's the um, it'll be um, people with strong stomachs that uh, um, that are first in um, to do that. Of course, as usual, we're almost out of time, Philip. I want to give you the last word. Um, Fill us with optimism. <laughs> Maybe you can't. I don't know. But but give well, us something I, I uplifting. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that filling with optimism is 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 quite the right point. But I think what we have to accept is that in the short term there's going to be considerable pain. We don't know the shape uh, of the recession that's coming. Um, I would hope that it is um, a V shape um, that we get it over with quickly and that we bounce back. Um, We've had a lot of wartime type analogies. This isn't a war. Um, the productive infrastructure of the country or of economies is not being destroyed. Um, it is still there. Uh, the shock uh, to supply is temporary and it will bounce back. Um, but as I've already said um, in this uh, uh, session, I think there will be some structural damage uh, to our economies. Um, we can't expect it to bounce back 100%. And most importantly, it'll change shape. Um, I suspect there will be a lot more homeworking, a lot more online shopping everywhere, um, a lot less high street um, retail in all economies, with the UK um, leading the way. Uh, some sections of the leisure industry may never uh, fully recover. Um, so there will be significant change to the economy. We will have to work out who's going to bear the costs of um, uh, this crisis and uh, apportion it through borrowing to future generations, through taxation and spending reductions to current uh, generations, or through um, allowing, encouraging uh, more inflation to um, ensure um, that it's distributed uh, in uh, within the current uh, population. Um, and I think. Um, what we will see is that our system is pretty um, resilient, but we will have to fight off challenges, not just from uh, the traditional left, but also from those with a radical climate change agenda, seeking to use this crisis 
as a catalyst to challenge our institutional uh, structure and the status quo of our economy. But I suspect we will um, we will demonstrate resilience and there will finally uh, be a need to revisit the way we operate our economy and global supply chains uh, to ensure that the physical resilience in our trade uh, structures is there in the future in a way that perhaps it hasn't demonstrated over the last few weeks. Philip, it's been hugely valuable having you with us today. Thank you very much uh, for your insight. Thank you also uh, to John and to Victoria for their thoughts as well. It's not easy at the moment, I know, with all the technology problems we have around the world. Um, everyone's working from home. People are dropping out on these video calls. But I think we got there. And, and I hope that it's given you, the viewer, uh, some real insight into and some clarity into uh, to where we're going. And a reminder to those of you who are watching that uh, you will receive a podcast of this session uh, tomorrow. Uh, and a reminder also that we will be back at the same time next Thursday. Uh, we will send you out invitations for that. So please do join us for our session uh, next week. Uh, but it's just left for me to say thank you for watching. Thank you uh, for the input from all uh, our panel. And from me, Christian Fraser, have a very good day. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.